1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In Wainui Omata, we are preaching through uh, the book of 1 Peter, and what you will hear now is the sermon we had last Sunday morning. So we are nearly through the book of 1 Peter. But whereas Peter has given a lot in his book about how we as Christians should live to outsiders, to the government, uh, to slave masters, in other words, our bosses, our employers, uh, and also how wives should submit to their unbelieving husbands. He now comes and, and he talks how we should live within this congregation. So it's not that Peter is selfish and wants to tell us how we should live and he forgets the world. No, he has done that. But in, this, in these verses, he tells us how we should, as brothers and sisters, operate within this congregation. And so, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text says and starts with these words that the end of all things, that is the end of all history, is near. Do you believe that? I mean, how many people still believe that? Even in the churches. Be honest. Do you think Christ's return is near? Do you hope for it? Do you long for it? Do you live in light of his return? You see, the return of the Lord has almost become an embarrassment for Christians. Or at least a point of non-interest. Perhaps on the back burner. Why? Well, because throughout the centuries, many a professing Christian has done what our Lord said we should not do. And that is to try and work out the exact date of his return. And so it has happened countless times that some or other self-proclaimed prophets said that Christ would return on this or that date. 
and such prophets had worked up their congregations to the point that they all were sitting in eager expectation for the Lord's return. And then the Lord did not come on that day. Not only did such prophets do damage to the faith of their congregation members, but they made Christianity and Christ the laughing stock of the world. And so that's one reason why the world may snigger when anyone says the end of all things is near. Another reason is people have become modern. You see, just in our lifetime, science and technology have progressed at an unbelievable pace. Through iPads, smartphones, and social media, you and I now have the world at our fingertips. Internet, Facebook, and Messenger, WhatsApp, everything. So in general, people think, oh, haven't we become smart in our times? But they forget. Is it true that simply because we have made great technological progress, we have also made great progress in life? I mean, have we made progress relationally? Have we made progress spiritually? Hardly. And so the question is, in light of that day, how do you and I live this day? Yes, I understand that, that on the last day it is not as if your and my good works will have earned for us entrance into heaven. For the Bible is clear, it is by grace you have been saved, not of works. Yet, we all know that true faith is not unaccompanied by good works. And so, our works will not count nothing on that day. Because the Lord himself has said as much that on top of your and my salvation by grace, he will still judge everyone according to what he or she has done. So do you and I, on that final day, want to be in total shock and embarrassment and say, mountains fall on us just so that we can escape the Lord? No. Well, that's why our text's main message is, in light of that day, here are four ways in which every Christian congregation should live. The first one is pray. The second one, love. The third one, hospitality. And the fourth one, gifts. So let us come to the first one then, pray. Yes, what is the first evidence of my love for my brothers and sisters and for my church family? It's the fact 
that I will pray for them. And how will I be able to pray for them? Verse 7 says, I should be clear-minded and sober. Perhaps you say, what? Why? Well, remember that many of Peter's first readers had just come out of paganism. And a few verses back, actually in chapter 4, the same chapter, verse 3, Peter had just reminded them how before they received Christ, they had spent enough time in drinking parties and drunkenness. Now Peter says, if you want to pray for your brothers and sisters in your church, you can't be drunk. You've got to have a clear mind. And so perhaps someone now will say, but, but pastor, none of us ever gets drunk. So this message, pastor, is not for us. Well, if that is so, that no one gets drunk, then praise God. However, although I hope none of our prayer lives are hindered by insobriety, do we not often find that due to a busy lifestyle, stress, and the things we load ourselves with, we are not clear-minded. We are not in the headspace to bring a brother or a sister in prayer before the Lord. And so we are just overwhelmed by the cares of life and work. I feel that at times I'm the pastor. I've got just about 110 people to pray for in the Wainui church. I don't pray for them all every day by name. Sometimes when I'm on a long flight, which is a scarce thing nowadays, I pray for the congregation in one go, each one by name. Peter says, as much as this, keep mentally and spiritually alert so that you can have an effective prayer life. And does not Paul say the same? Ephesians 6 verse 18, that very well-known verse. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And then Paul jumps further and he says, With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So here's a question. If you and I had known that the end of the world would come at midnight tonight. Would not that knowledge have driven you and me on our knees in prayer, not just for ourselves, but for our church family? Yes, would not that knowledge have energized your and my prayers and led them to focus especially and effectively on our loved ones? And would not the same thing have happened if you had known that at midnight tonight a brother or sister in this church would die and meet the Lord? Same thing, isn't it? Whether you die and meet the Lord 
or whether the Lord comes, it's the same in effect. Yes, would you then not have spent most of the hours leading up to tonight, midnight, in prayer for that brother or sister? You see, the Apostle Peter says, in light of the Lord's return, pray for one another. So here is the second point. Love one another. My brother and sister, is it hard for you to show love to every single one in this church family? Do differences of personality bother you? Do some members' quirks and idiosyncrasies and habits hinder you from even just going up to them and talking to them? I love how one author has described the typical congregation. This is what he says. And I hope there's nobody in this congregation with these names. There in our local church is Anne, who doesn't know much about hygiene and is frankly smelly. Bill wears you out with his incessant talking. Kathy is so unspiritual. Don doesn't get along with Evelyn. Fred treats his wife badly. Jeannie is an awkward teenager, never knowing how to act with courtesy or discretion. Hillary often grumbles. Irene has a different set of interests and values. She can't come to the Tuesday evening prayer meeting because it clashes with the local Amnesty International group. And so on it goes. And then there is Charles, to be sure, who is really quite saintly, but rather drab and dull as a person. None of them is very easy to love at full stretch. Of course, there is also myself. And I figure in other people's lists of difficult people for similar reasons. So far, the quote. See, see the, the typical congregation? Then here comes the question. What will it take to reach out to such quirky and strange people? Here's the answer. Love. But self-sacrificial love born out of an absolute awe for our Heavenly Father, for His much greater love to us, in crushing his son so that you and I can live. Now, will not a congregation's love for one another be overtly seen and felt? If they had known that tonight, our Lord would return. Or that tonight, God will call Brother X 
or Sister Z home. See why in the Holy Spirit Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another. Some have translated it as, keep on having this persevering love, this devoted love, this constant love. My brother and sister, have you thought love is easy? It's hard work in the congregation. And look, is not this love born out of our Lord Jesus' love? I mean, did our Lord Jesus not say, John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you'll have love one for another. My brother and sister, what will you and I see if we really have this love for everyone in the church, even the quirky ones, even the strange ones? Well, we will see this truth as verse 8 says. Love covers a multitude of sins. You say, but well, what does that mean? Can love forgive people their sins? No, no, that's not what the apostle is meaning. What he means is much the same as 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. In that way, love covers a multitude of sins. See how I will be ready to go and talk with Don or with Bill, even though they, inside here, irritate me. Well, so far regarding love for one another, and seeing that the end of all things is near, what is the third thing our text says a congregation will do for one another. Well, verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another. And so I'm going to talk first to the children now. Children, do you sometimes complain and grumble when mom and dad say, Hi kids, Tonight, a minister and an elder are coming to eat at our place and they will stay for the night. So please, children, come vacuum the lounge, tidy the kitchen, clean the bathroom, and help mom prepare a nice meal. Do you complain? The word in verse 9 means to make an utterance in a low tone of voice as you grumble behind someone's back. And that's exactly what I once did when I was 12. And one night after dinner, my dad said, Peter, it's your turn to wash the dishes. I waited until I thought my dad was far down the hallway. Then I did exactly this. I moaned, muttered, and grumbled to my older sister, I'm sick and tired of this. Every time I hear I have to do the dishes, I get the sick feeling down my throat. My dad heard the muttering. And it was only my sister's giggles that defused the situation. 
or else I would have been in big trouble. In those days, the cane was ready, or the strap that had a saying on it, finished with talking. (laughs) So children, do you moan and grumble when it's your turn to show hospitality? Well, did you know that the Christians in the early church just had to be hospitable? Why? Because mostly they did not have their own church buildings. So instead, it happened that they came together at the house of one of the church members. And it may rotate. Now just think with me. If no one in that early church was willing to put up his hand and say, Hi dear church family, you are all welcome to come to my house next Sunday. Then how would they have met together for worship? But the situation was even tougher than that. You see, hospitality in those days did not just mean that you offer a big room, your lounge or another big room. No, it also involved a meal. And even if every congregation member brought some food from their own homes, the host family would still have to provide some plates and cutlery and perhaps washing up facilities. What's more, Sunday worship would have taken most of that day. They did not just come for an hour or two. They stayed for the whole day. Thus the host's hospitality was stretched out. It's a long day. And how about hospitality to visiting pastors? Well, in those days, pastors were traveling long distances. Not in a Toyota Corolla like mine. They were weary when they arrived at their host's place. And the pastors were not wealthy. And hotels or inns or Airbnbs were not as many and not as acceptable as now. And so every time Paul or Peter or Silas or Titus or Apollos or Timothy arrived in town someone in the congregation would have to put up his or her hand. And that's why from his prison in Rome, Paul wrote to Philemon, Philemon, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. And just imagine what it was like to host the Apostle Paul. Would not the host have to be very energetic enough to sustain lengthy conversations in theology and on updates on brothers and sisters of other far-off churches. But the Bible says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Sometimes I think some hosts angels. My brother and sister, granted, not all of us, not all of you, 
will be all of the time in a position to show hospitality. But what a joy it will be if the Lord, whom we love so much, returned next weekend and you and I knew we have shown hospitality to one of his loved ones. Yes, to a brother or sister. And the Lord then said, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And he continues saying, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers... You did for me. Hospitality. That was the third one. Here's the last point in the sermon. What Christians in this church community will do for one another. Share your gifts with one another. Gifts. Over the last 40 years of my life, in which my dear Annette and I have been in six different congregations, I have heard one constant thing from members who announced that they wanted to leave the church and go to another church or denomination. And this is what I have heard. We are leaving because we feel we were not getting much here. But here's the question to such people. Have you forgotten what our Lord Jesus has said? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Have you forgotten the words of stanza 3 of Sing to the Lord 502, which we are going to sing after the sermon? It is in giving to all people that we receive. See, spiritual growth and spiritual blessings come when we give. And in verse 10, Peter, just like Paul, says that each one of us, each church member, has received a gift. Every one of you, my brother and sister, has received a gift from God. For what purpose, says Peter? He says it's to serve one another. This morning when I read the law for us, I read from Romans 12, and the Apostle Paul lists gifts there, and he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, we will say if a man's gift is preaching, then let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, Catechism, Sunday school, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, and the idea is here financially, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That's what Paul says. But in our text, Peter has listed all sorts of gifts that you and I can have in only two categories. The first one is the gift of using your mouth. So Peter calls it speaking. The gift of speaking. The second one, the gift of using your hands. 
Peter calls it serving. That is serving in any capacity within this congregation in Hastings. But whatever your and my gifts are, whether it is using your mouth or using your hands, the point Peter is making in verse 11 is that each one of us will use our gift in a way that will reflect this gift's divine origin. We got this gift from God. So to Him must go the glory. I use my gift not to put focus on me, but on my Lord. In other words, we will use our gifts in a humble, sincere, and unselfish way. We will use our gifts on God's terms and for His glory, as Brother Dirk van Gadren used to say. Yes, in using our gift, we will take the back seat and let Christ have the front seat, as Reverend John Gores used to say. So here's the question. What will be the result if every member in this church family in Hastings will use his or her gift, whether it's the gift of the mouth or the gift of the hands, in such an unselfish and God-honoring manner? What will happen? Well, will that not instill courage and trust in a fellow brother and sister in this church to come seek our assistance, our help? Whether it be the hands, the hands help, the practical help, or whether it be the help of the mouth, counseling. Of course it will instill that trust. And so with that in mind, let me ask you a question which one of our elders often asks in Wainuiumata of those who are about to profess their faith in our church. And it's a question relating to the gift of the mouth, particularly to the gift of counseling, of giving advice. Here is his very valid question. He will say, young person, look, in this church we call one another brother and sister, which assumes a relationship that is close, a relationship of love and trust. So tell me, young person, if one day you find yourself between a rock and a hard place and you're at a deep low, is there anyone in this church Anyone who employs his or her gift of the mouth of counseling in such humility and a God-glorifying manner that you will feel comfortable, comfortable enough to go and entrust yourself to that person. Yes, to confide in that person. Could you already now, before you are in that deep space, can you identify a godly man, a godly woman, whose counsel you would gladly seek? So this is also the question to all of us here. Is there a person in this church 
to whom you can go because you know that person uses his gift of counseling for God's glory and not for himself or herself. As I was writing this sermon Friday a week ago, and without trying too hard, I was able to, off the cuff and within one minute, list more than 25 individuals, about 12 couples in the Wainui church to whom I will gladly go for my advice or counseling on a difficult issue. And of course, then in Wainui, I don't know here, we have the Saturday morning men's breakfast once a month. And what a blessing that is when older men, middle-aged men, young men sit around the breakfast table studying a book that generates questions. And so the older and younger share how they were by God's strength be able to have been able to process some difficulties of life. I think in this congregation you have several Bible study groups in which you may find that you counsel one another, the gift of the mouth. God's word exhorts congregation members to counsel and encourage one another. But we want to conclude. Again, the question is, my brother and sister, in light of that day, a day which according to the Bible is sure to come, although you and I don't know that date, why will you and I not live this day praying for one another, loving one another despite our quirks, showing hospitality to one another, sharing our gifts with one another in a humble and God-honoring way. May God give you and me the strength that we need. Amen.